Welcome to the Ross Republic podcast. Um, I'm Adrian, partner for digital banking at Ross Republic. For this episode, I'm joined by two fintech experts, um, Matthias Pniewski, who is CEO and co-founder of TransactionLink, a platform that connects providers of various fintech functionalities with customers who are either fintechs themselves or want to become a fintech. Matthias, great to have you here on the podcast. Um, is there anything you want to add to that description of TransactionLink? Hi, Adrian. Very nice to Thanks for having me uh, on your podcast. Uh, I think you, you got it right. I mean, we are we really like to think about ourselves a bit like WordPress for fintech or Zapier for fintech. So really playing around with modules, connecting them really the way you want and making them very much embeddable into your use case and your product. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great to have you here on the podcast. And also Thanks. we have Lars Makul, um, who is currently working as banking lead at Viver, a platform for creating, integrating, deploying, as well as running fintech products. Lars, thanks for joining. How are you doing? Hey, Adrian. Hey, Matthias. Thanks for having me. Very good. Very excited to talk Great. about this topic today. So I would ask you directly um, a first quick intro question about um, any fintech related news that recently popped up that grabbed your mind. We just we just spoke about it uh, before recording. Um, I think today um, uh, today on twenty fourth of June it was just announced that Tink is, uh, was acquired by by Visa for I think uh, nearly two billion euros. Um, obviously, Visa tried a similar move last year already while acquiring Plaid. Um, now they're going for the next big company in the space here in Europe. I think it's definitely an exciting news for for the space, but also specifically for for the ecosystem in Europe. Yeah, Tink, Tink is the one that recently acquired a German open banking player, right? Tink did acquire Fintech Systems, um, one of the yeah. German open banking companies, just a few weeks ago. Interesting. Fast-moving acquisition market. <laughs> yeah, actually linking to this, uh, quite interesting in the context of what's happening on the markets is the uh, Revolt posting their net 200 million uh, pound or or about that loss, um, which is, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive and I... I obviously get asked by my parents, why are you doing a business that is not even meant to generate profits? Uh, yeah. But um, I think this is a very interesting, I mean, it, it's great to see that even though the, like, the trust in, in challenger, challenger banks is somewhat decaying and there is, we, I think like some, even some funds start openly saying, please don't build any more challenger banks. Uh, there is still a lot of trust and like a lot of belief in this market. And that's very, very good because as we kind of move into the infrastructure first fintechs, uh, you know, it's, it's really about optimizing the change and like optimizing for um, traffic, for people actually being interested in, the, in those products as opposed to, as opposed to um, uh, profits. And, you know, it's very, very refreshing to see that the markets, the financial markets are still there to kind of support that thesis that it's really all about putting people on board of the fintech train rather than look for profit just yet. Absolutely. Actually, that's interesting because I had also Revolut's um, annual number from 2020 as my newsworthy piece. Um, and what I found very interesting about it is actually that um, they have they have kind of borrowed an, a ninja move from Tesla, which is holding cryptocurrency assets on on um, on your balance sheet. Um, so um, like the revenue figures that they posted have been adjusted to include the fair value gains of the of the crypto that they were holding in, in 2020. Um, and that and they made 54 million dollars uh, just on top of these crypto gains. Um, <laughs> so which is it's it's a nice um, nice move to um, to boost your earnings, right? But um, I would actually see Revolut and Tesla in the same bucket of companies, very aggressive, very driven to actually disrupt a super old industry. So um, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that they 
that they did that. So I think that was very interesting. Um, but if we move to the topic um, of today, which is um, that we want to try to, or at least aim to demystify some of the most hyped fintech terminology and underlying models um, that are currently floating around um, in the banking bubble. And it can, of course, confuse some people that are not inside this bubble what it actually means. Um, there are various combinations of the terms banking, finance, fintech, and service um, continuously thrown around the press and so on. Um, so that's why we decided to have this short session about um, about these topics, what they actually mean, what you can build with it, um, so that um, yeah we provide insights and clarity into the into the whole field. Um, and if we zoom out a little bit, why this all has happened, um, why for example this linear direct-to-consumer banking model is gradually eroding and um, why there are more open open ecosystems in banking evolving. And just to talk a little bit about, about the triggers of change, is there anything that Lars or Matthias you want to mention based on the work you're doing? Um, do you see more the change coming from a tech perspective or more from a consumer perspective? What's really driving this you know, um, API-driven banking change that is currently happening? I mean, of course, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of factors. Overall, I would say the, the most important one is definitely change in consumer behavior. I think overall, all of us have some experience in, in fintechs and banking. Consumers tend to act slow in banking. It takes time to adapt. But I still think, man, looking back, like maybe something like 10 years ago, how many of the things have changed in the industry. So I'm pretty sure like most of it, what's happening right now is driven by consumer behavior. And obviously, new companies that have been founded by very smart people with the right investors, with the right setup, understanding um, where this need is going and addressing it and kind of thinking outside of the, um, of the typical typical bubble. So specifically around, let's say, embedded finance or um, offering this kind of thing. I think one of the main change that I've seen in the last 10 years is like traditionally, I mean, we know all this phrase, like uh, we need we need banking, not banks. But traditionally, everybody went to a bank and the bank sold to a lot of people, a lot of different people, but different types of people. Doesn't matter who the person were as long as this person needed banking products. And right now, I think it's completely different. There's a lot more companies that are dressing on specific markets, specific segments and try to find the right solution for them. And they don't care if it's banking, insurance or anything else. They just find a customer pain of the customers they're addressing and they're trying to solve it. And obviously, technology and regulation is, is enabling them to, to exactly do that. Yeah, just to kind of comment on this, what you, what you said, Lars, I think it's, um, I, I think I will take a, a bit more pragmatic view of this. So, you know, thinking in mathematical terms, financial services are and will be one of the biggest drivers of global GDP, right? Like if you look at, if you Google it, it's currently probably some like a significant digit, at least, uh, of the global value we produce as human beings right so it's kind of natural to think that you know i as a company i want a chunk of this right like why should i be doing something super complicated where when i could use doing something related to financial services in my business and actually get a get a piece of that huge huge market opportunity and it just makes sense right like every day we as humans do transactions do something finance based so it just makes sense for it to be much more omnipresent and i think the the drive for api first solutions to kind of start embedding them into 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 new products and new contexts is also like we are at the stage of the of the kind of innovation curve where i think it's much more driven by companies wanting to explore new revenue streams and new value propositions and actually slowing slowly realizing that they have the exact and perfect customer context for selling financial services and i think this is key to understanding embedded finance in general embedded banking and so on that 
understanding that this third party really needs to kind of disappear at some point and in order to uh, because it's unnecessary in this equation right and 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 these com i think a lot of companies are trying are understanding this and i think it's a very simple simple pattern of hey i got the user's attention i know that user's attention is getting more and more expensive as you can see with any app that gets released you need loads of money to get that attention but i already have it so why wouldn't i monetize in new ways that are arguably one of the most uh, margin margin heavy uh, ways in the world, right? So let's let's just let's just try it out. And I think I, th I think the early days of of, of this embedded of a embedded trend is very much linked to companies realizing that they're missing out. Obviously, that is very much linked to consumer behaviors changing. But we, for example, observe that uh, you know even even if that it's becoming clear that consumers are kind of digital first now. They want everything mobile. They want everything online. Uh, it is still a bit of a weird situation for them to see, I don't know, um, a, even a buy now, pay later solution in a place they didn't expect it, right? So like the, people are not used to banks not doing their normal banking uh, activities or lending companies doing their normal lending activities. So like, I, I think it's definitely driven by a macro trend of consumers wanting to everything to be online, streamlined, simple and like one click. But at the same time, I think a very important driver for this going forward is actually companies realizing that they're going to benefit from it. So it's not just pleasing the customer, it's actually making, also making much more money, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, also, from my side, I, I fully agree with both of you. And um, um, I would also mention, as you said already, that regulation is one of the uh, drivers, actually. Um, as an example, Holvi would probably not have been possible if there wouldn't have been PSD1 um, 10 years ago, um, which, which allowed actually to launch a new payment service um, without the huge capital requirements that you usually had um, to have a place if you went for a full banking license. Um, and then, of course, open banking, PSD2 and so on, which we will cover later as well, I think is driving or at least opening up some opportunities that entrepreneurs can then take up to change how banking is, is conducted. Also, like this whole tech topic, like cloud APIs, microservices is, is, is not banking unique or specific to that industry. It's something that have, has happened in telco um, and, and other industries uh, already. So that's, uh, I think, only a natural evolution that uh, banks are moving everything to the cloud and so on. I think that's, that's a simple part of it but the customer centricity and customer i think the yeah the customer the use cases that that um banking is directly embedded at the point of interaction i think that's something that, that is driving a huge huge change um in the last in the last podcast for example we had banks there which is embedding um smb lending directly into online platforms or potentially everywhere where smbs are conducting business um and they recently got a deal with delivery hero um so um interestingly they told us their customers are not coming to them like their B2B customers. They're coming to them not into not because they want to have a fintech product integrated into their system, but because they want to help their own clients grow, provide a better service, or have the funds to actually buy products and then resell them on the platform. So it's also a business-driven perspective and the convenience perspective, um, not just because they want to get um, five percent more revenue or something like that. So it's it's um, I think they're different factors, but. I, and, and you need new players to cater to that need, both on the consumer side and also on the platform side that want to, you know, the businesses that want to integrate banking. Um, so this is why I think it's 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 a really interesting shift that's gradually but um, steadily happening right now, where you will not have this direct banking model anymore, but have a, an embedded banking model, um, which has massive implications for for the whole value chain. Um, so this definitely needs to be on the strategic agenda. 
I think um, what we can do now is basically provide short descriptions of what we think what these terms actually mean. Just to clarify that right, right at the beginning, I have checked some definitions from official sources. Um, I would be very interested to hear from you, you guys first. If we start with open banking, which is like the most hyped term, I think, um, or at least over the last years, what what is open banking? What, what does it mean? So Lars, if, um, do you want to start sure i mean if i want to make it i mean Matteo is obviously right now working in that space so he would probably add some comments as well if i make it like a very short description i would say accessing existing financial products and integrate them into into your core offering yeah like existing meaning um a bank account that is already there at deutsche bank or hsbc and you just want to plug into it exactly reading out i mean obviously everything is driven here in europe at the moment or a lot is driven by psc2 so a lot of some is focused around that but i think it's also important to mention open banking is, is connected, is maybe interlinked with PSD2, but it's a lot more, right? I mean, at the end of it, it means take something yeah. which has already existed, uh, which is offered by another financial provider, and you set it integrated into your offering. Yeah, exactly. So um, when I was thinking about like a definition that would really drill down uh, into the core of this, what this means, I actually realized that the name like is just out there and actually shows it. So uh, without overthinking it, the, the word open actually suggests that something exists but it was closed before so and i think this is the key so like we were lars is definitely going to talk about uh, banking as a service in a minute but um i think the, the bit that is very pivotal to understanding what open banking means is that it leverages things that exist in banks today and only makes them available to the outside um, and that's 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 very important to differentiate because banking as a service will go deeper and say right like what banks have built is not sufficient and we have kind of re-engineered that but so so open banking uh, open banking bears the, the the advantages of banks having built that in the past and you just can readily use it obviously it has its drawbacks because it differs bank by bank and that, but that was kind of to be predicted um so, so that's a big advantage that you can use things that already are in place and you can start like playing around with them immediately it obviously it has its drawbacks that yeah i mean on a tech on a technical level uh, it's it's not the same everywhere, and also it means that there is a finite number of things that the bank is supposed to or wants to give you, right? So uh, it's not like the bank just entirely exposes itself; it just exposes the bits that are can be used by you. So again, there is a constraint that it may be annoying for for um, for developers, for innovators. Uh, but then at the same time, when I look at the space, I can see that just just the fact that PS, that that um, open banking essentially gives you three big blobs of, of tech that you can play around with. So AISP, the, the access to account, the PISP, so payment initiation and confirmation of funds, which is debatable why it's there or if anyone even knows how to use it. Uh, but it actually like it's, it's really refreshing to see how people just having three tools, they can build crazy things. So that's why, you know, it was it was just intuitive for banking as a service companies to move deeper and say right like if we give those those people like hundreds of tools like what are they going to build now so so in a nutshell i think it's like in, uh, open banking is very much um can should very much be understand understand it as um you know banks having something and making it available to you and that bears all the consequences of that including you know technical problems data not being what you might ideally want uh, but you get it readily available, exposed to you, uh, kind of pre-made. Someone has been doing it, had some heavy lifting for you, and that's, and you're just using that. And that's brilliant, right? Like banks are an, an absolutely necessary part of that. Um, 
yeah, so that's that's yeah. that's in my opinion open open banking. Great. <clears throat> I also think I would add to that that the banks didn't do this um, because they found it um, funny or um, interesting to open up their data. But um, it, it actually, I think if I got it right, it originated in the UK. Um, also, the term open banking um, launched by the Competition and Markets Authority, who, who analyzed the market and basically realized that it's really driven by the big incumbent banks and that smaller upstart banks really had had um, huge challenges in growing their business because the incumbents had so much market power. So um, they launched um, various initiatives and one of them was open banking, which then basically forced banks um, to open up account data and also um, let others um, uh, uh, make transactions on existing account infrastructure, of course, if customers give consent first. But um, that's, that's, that's how it started. So that allowed other innovators to basically use some of the bank's data, as you just mentioned, and, and provide use cases on that. Um, but these are existing accounts with existing banking um, providers. Um, and then the um, European legislation had a more fancy name, which is the um, Second Payment Services Directive. <laughs> so no, of course, no one know, is supposed to know what that means, but it's it's very similar. So it also allows other third authorized third, third parties. So you need a license actually to do it um, or have a licensed partner. Um, and they can then plug into banking APIs and then read um, transactions on existing accounts and also um, initiate transactions on um, from account to account. Um, so so that, hap that happened over the last two years. Banks had been forced to um, provide API infrastructure to actually allow third parties to plug into it with, as you mentioned, various problems, of course, we don't want to want to go into technical terms, but API standards and, and data structures and so on, um, API gateways, all of the stuff um, that can provide headaches for for third parties if they want to plug into it. But um, this this interestingly has also led to um, aggregators that actually do all the work to integrate into all of these single banking APIs like Tink, which Lars mentioned that has just been acquired. So you only need to go to one provider who's the middle middleware and then connects into other banks' um, data structure. So um, yeah, I think that's basically in a nutshell of open banking. I, I think the final comment here is that open banking indeed, like you said, was is a term that has become a thing, like it's, it has kind of been coined in the UK and there are organizations in the UK that are called according to the open like, so there's an open banking organization and, and so this name is really i, I think i think open as far as i remember open banking uh was this kind of first scheme before psd2 so it was a, a bit of an expert like a bit of a sandbox regulatory sandbox for europe uh to play around uh with what this could look like that's why they find their own terms uh, and that's why if you go to the continent uh if you use open banking, you, some, sometimes people get confused as, as if, if you're talking about the UK connections, are you talking about uh, PSD2 connections in general? And then obviously there's subgroups of, 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 the, of these names, then the Berlin group, the whatever API standards uh, that are all over the place. Uh, but yeah, it essentially means the same with the only exception of probably open banking. Um, in the UK is the most advanced one when it comes to regulators really, really um, you know, employing people to, 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 to talk to banks, to explain to them that why these APIs should work. That's just not the case in the rest of Europe. Um, but yeah, you know, just trying to make clear that the name has been kind of ta taken away from, uh, from the UK. And it actually is already present in Australia and soon Kazakhstan. Uh, but it's just a name, right? Like it's meant to be, yeah. it's actually, this, this, as you, as you rightfully said, that the PSD2 that made, made this a thing in reality. Absolutely. And um, also related to um, open banking, a, a term that has um, continuously um, spread around the fintech scene is um, banking as a service. 
So we all know like um, software as a service, which is um, basically um, you know a software that you can deploy over the cloud um, and you usually use it on a pay-as-you-go basis. So a very flexible system for, for using a specific piece of software and likewise banking as a service um, basically allows either other banks or non-financial institutions or non yeah, non-financial institutions um, to embed banking into their existing products and propositions and customer experiences. Um, for example, like point of sale credit um, or integrated bank accounts um, and the banking as a service provider is the entity that makes all of this possible. So one like one example from Germany that I could mention is Solaris Bank. I read today that they're they will are likely to become the next unicorn in Germany that they're also getting a new funding, big funding round. Basically, what they're doing is providing, um, I think it's a special case with Solaris Bank, they have a banking license that they basically lend out to others. Um, and they have um, their own banking system and co-banking system in place, which on, on top of that, they build products like accounts, payments, cards, loans, um, and then they might label it for others. So you can build a new bank on top of it, like Penta, which is doing SME banking or Trade Republic, which are which is a super fast growing um, trading um, brokerage app. Um, they all use um, Solaris Bank's infrastructure, basically banking as a service to build all of this. So they don't need to get their own license for it and their own core banking systems and so on. So this is um, yeah, this is a fast growing segment as well. And um, you can either build, as I said, banking products on top of that, or you're maybe um, looking for a niche solution like Solaris Bank has also launched um, a split pay product with Amex. So Amex customers could basically split the purchases they make with the Amex card over several months. And this is then provided also by um, Solaris Bank as a banking partner in the background. And there are different models in banking as a service. Some of them have a banking license. Others require you to get your own license and you just use the banking products um, of the banking as a service partner. So, so this is a quite um, broad field with different players and different markets in the UK, in Germany, and France. Like it's basically popping up everywhere right now. Um, and Lars with Weaver is also one of the um, companies at the forefront of that. So how, how would you see this banking as a service field now? Maybe some confusions around it as well. Sure, I think one of the most important. I mean, you do touch on it, of course. Is but one of the very important to mention is, bank as a service at the end enables companies to provide modular pro banking products um, for for other companies, right? So um, obviously, we all know the bank. We all know our traditional bank, maybe that we banked with 10, 20 years ago, offering like 20 products, um, and we kind of every bank account, every banking product we used, we have maybe from this bank or maybe from other banks, and they're all offered current accounts, savings account, trading accounts, loans, everything from that. And what banking as a service or the whole mindset of banking as a service and a lot of other stuff, of course, as well, is it's probably very, very hard to be like the best at like these 20 different products that might look very, very different and selling them to a wide range of different customers. So banking as a service really enables other companies to pick specific product they want to offer. Don't build all the overhead that you need maybe before for this one product and really focus on, on providing this to, to the customer. And I think we mentioned before at the end of it in today's world, one of the biggest um, biggest asset as a company you can have is access to customer, be able to, to communicate with the customer and sell additional products. So obviously leveraging banking as a service provider to provide this is extremely, extremely powerful. And personally, I would say, I mean, I'm not even sure like who I would describe as like the first banking as a service company ever. Um, I don't know, from a German perspective, maybe it was Wirecard or maybe even Fedor Bank um, uh, some time ago when they when they launched specific um, API or white label access to, to certain products. 
I think right now, and of I mean, the, the success of Solaris Bank, I think, uh, shows it on its own. Um, the last 12, 18 months, of course, have seen a lot, a big push in going digital. Uh, these providers that are banking on top of Solaris Bank have received like great attention. So, of course, that, that helps them a lot. I think overall, I mean, we're talking here about demystifying embedded banking, embedded finance. That's what has at the moment happening. And for example, speaking about Weaver, we are a banking as a service company, but we much more prefer to describe ourselves as an embedded banking provider. But what we are, we are currently seeing is that a lot more companies from very outside of fintech want to offer banking products. And while they still need this concept of banking as a service, they very often need a different type of provider. They need a provider who, yes, can bring the license, but also do a lot more than that. Because obviously, somebody who wants to build the next challenger bank is probably more interested to get a little bit more of the raw product and take over more of the compliance and other pieces because they have the intention to become a bank at a later point of time if everything works out successfully. So they don't mind picking up small things early to build on top of it. On the other hand, companies that do that want to do like embedded banking, companies who are completely outside of fintech, they probably have the plan to idly never get very close to the compliance, the regulation, all these kind of things. They rather want to work with providers who can take over as much as possible. And I mean, again, like we, as we were, have developed a platform that exactly enables that, so our customers don't have to deal with these things. Um, but I'm also not saying it's the, it's the perfect solution for everybody. It really depends, you as a company, what kind of banking products you want to sell, in, in what context. Um, if you want to become in the bank in the future, then probably this is very important for you um, when, when deciding a provider as well. Absolutely. Um, but I think you mentioned that um, or summarized it quite uh, perfectly. I, I, I just checked actually um, the, the Mercedes-Benz credit card on the website right now um, because I think there's a, there's a big um, important message to make as well. Like banking as a service, when we, when we talk about that now, we're talking about the new wave of banking as a service providers. As he's mentioned, Fedor, Wirecard, they have been ex existing before. And even before them, there have been traditional banks that have been white labeling banking services. But that's a completely different game. Um, it's, it's, it's not really based on APIs and cloud and developer um, portals, for example. So it's, 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 it's quite the opposite of that. Um, so, um, for example, I just checked the Mercedes-Benz credit card. These type of use cases have been existing, obviously, for ages or, you know, um, airline credit cards and so on. And they are actually issued and managed by, in the case of Mercedes-Benz, of Baden-Württembergische Bank. So, so basically, uh, an incumbent bank within Germany that does these things for, for Mercedes-Benz. And um, that's, that's quite a different model. So, if you today are a modern software company and you want to launch a, a card pro product or payments product, um, you would probably not go to Baden-Württembergische Bank in Germany, but rather go to some uh, um, of the modern providers like Beaver that um, that allows you to plug and play with these things and actually check out the APIs and um, what exactly they can offer and how you configure them. And it's much more, I would say, developer-driven um, as banking is anyways moving into digital banking, um, which is a natural evolution, I which, would say. This is actually actually a perfect example because I mean, I'm not I'm not a not a not an owner of a Mercedes-Benz uh, credit card, uh, but I am the owner of an Amazon credit card, and I think the experience is pretty much the same. I think also Amazon works with, uh, I think maybe Landesbank Berlin or uh, some other kind of partners. Okay. The experience is pretty much the same. I get a banking product from a company who is not really a bank, like Amazon, but it's not really embedded. I mean, if you if you maybe use a Mercedes-Benz card or even Amazon card, you have a different portal, which tends to be super clunky, super old school. You have to access it over there. Not all of the data is available in Amazon. Some of them is, but it's it's really like a very different approach. Like when, when somebody, like a new provider, but new solutions today, and they do the full embedded approach. Embedded means digitally embedded. They have like the full focus on customer experience. And these providers are more like from the, let's say, maybe more like banking as a service side, a little bit more remote school.
Yeah, so, so I think Lars really touched on, on, on very on a very important thing that part of this new infrastructure fin, like infrastructure fintechs that will be I, I think the next decade is going to be all about infrastructure and fintech really, um, and I, I think I think the paradigm shift here is that people just think that fintech is reserved for a certain type certain group of 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 people who know what it's what it means what interest rates means what like securities means and 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 the one thing that definitely like regardless of whether you are competing with one another or not like we are very much in the business of telling everyone that hey if you're a developer and you have like mid-level java developer skills suddenly you can really start building financial products and I think this is this is something that will we probably will be talking them in about the embeddability of it all. But the fact that there are companies out there who take away the entire uh, compliance heavy lifting away from you, so that on one hand you are compliant, but then you actually don't need to deal with it. I think this is something like this is the heavy lifting we have to do as people building companies in the in this, in this infrastructure space now. Now, and um, I think banking as a service has this. Um, like like Lara said, there's this fine line uh, between banking as a service who is doing like heavy artillery uh, financial products, right? So like an example of that would be Move in the states that has gone super deep into the uh, financial infrastructure primitives, as, as effectively. So they go really really deep, and obviously there's use cases for this. But what I think what Lars and we ourselves at Transactioning can really observe is that there is a very big population of people who they understand what banking is in this entire equation, but they don't. Like on one hand, they're afraid of all the of all the risks that banking can bring. Even the word banking is just like, oh, I don't want to deal with this, and, and and making this embeddable in a sense that how can this work for my product? I don't want to understand finance. I don't understand. I don't have the capacity to understand finance. Please tell me how this can work really well for my product. And 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 that very often doesn't mean I need to issue a a full set of scheme of credit cards. It does very well, does very often, but doesn't not always, right? Some, sometimes you just want something very simple, like like banks will probably have, uh, will give you just like you know I've got the, my users' attention. Please upsell them on some you know uh, SMB um, lending product now. And I, and I think and I think something that needs to be distinguished here, and we as a company often get get asked is. How are we, we, for example, different to, to, to this classic Solaris bank style BAS? And I think the answer to this is that, you know, as much as those banking as a service companies are out there providing very sophisticated financial products, there is a need to kind of uh, to fill in the void of, okay, this is super clever, this is super complicated, but how does this really work for my product? How can I put it on my website? And that's kind of, I think, where we as transactioning are trying to Fill that, fill that gap with very practical tools for you to play around with and embed it in your website, in your CRM, whatever. And I, I, and I think Weaver is very much on the, um, on the kind of more raw side of let's take those banking products and actually make them usable for, for those companies. So it's a, it's a slightly different approach, but I think both Weaver and TransactionLink are in the space of making financial products really consumable for, for, uh, for innovators, for companies, for e-commerce shops, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I would also mention um, uh, some of other some like other terms that are usually floating around when we now talk about open banking and banking as a service, um, which is core banking. 
it's uh, and co-banking is not open banking or is, or related to anything of the other ter- or any of the other terms that we just mentioned. Um, but I think it's important to to um, also clarify that one because uh, co-banking usually describes a co-banking system, which is basically software, um, a backend system that um, processes daily transaction, daily banking tra- banking transactions. Um, post updates to the accounts and other financial records. So this is basically a core banking software is what is like the key piece of software that you need to use whenever you're building a bank. And modern core banking systems are built in the cloud and also delivered as a service, um, like Modular Bank in Estonia, for example, is one of these providers. Um, whereas there, uh, there's a big range of incumbent core banking providers like um, Finastra, uh, Temenos, and so on that um, um, also gradually move their systems to the cloud now. But core banking basically means it's um, it's really um, um, a system that a backend system that banks are using. Um, and likewise, software as a service for banks is another category which I, I would say um, would be more point solutions that banks are using to run their business. For example, a, a software as a service solution for onboarding, for digital onboarding, or um, for AML, uh, Comply Advantage is one, one big player in that space that provides AML solutions um, uh, directly in the cloud um, that you can use um, as a service um, to, to run your business and, and basically use their their software to do um, um, anti-money laundering and so on. And, this all, and all of this banking as a service developments and open banking has led to embedded finance I would just describe it like that, which is an overarching term, which we and we talked about it now at length, that you can now have different kinds of routes to market if you want to embed banking into your own um, uh, systems and own propositions. Um, and under embedded finance, you have embedded banking, embedded payments, embedded lending. Matthias, what, what's your opinion on, on these categories? Um, how, how do you see them? Yeah, so like w- w- when I think about these three terms that we're now talking about, then there is this banking as a service um, a layer, and I think it's like kind of low in this in, in this stack, right? Like it goes deep, it talks directly to the banks, or it replaces the bank. Then on top of that, you got open APIs, open banking, PSE2 connections. They kind of don't go so deep, but they talk to what potentially even vast companies build, right? So they talk to those banks and their their balance sheet, their their core banking systems, like but like for example, Mambu. Um, and and then and I and when I think about embedded finance, I would I would say it's actually the third layer on top. That's something I touched upon um, uh, just 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 a minute ago. That you know this is all great, and this this financial these those financial services have been exposed by an open API, but actually putting them in the customer context is what embedded finance is all about and when i think about open uh, sorry about embedded finance i really see like three categories of um of embedding it properly so you know embedding essentially means let's take something and let's let's put it in another context let's make it kind of even white label like uh, invisible for the consumer uh, and like like make it kind of blend into the interaction that is already happening right so and, and like when you look at this i think there are like those, those three stages so the first one that is i don't think is rightfully being called embedded finance is basically upselling financial products on someone's on someone's premises right so you basically say, hey, you just bought that car, and here is a link to our trusted provider of leasing services, for example, right? And some, and those companies that do those leasing services love to call them embedded finance because you know that's kind of the part of the checkout that you go to their website now and uh, and, and and do the, le- the the leasing action and kind of the, the, the scoring for for your leasing for leasing your car. Uh, but these are these separate services completely, right? Like you are buying a car on one website and then 
you're you're going through a separate process for the, with the with the leasing company. So that's the first that's the first step. What I think that it has nothing to do at at finance. It's like it's probably like a lead generation for the for the leasing yeah. company, if 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 anything else. Um, so the second stage is some, something that I think banks were, for example, of this world started off with, and there is moving progressively into the third step that I'm just uh, I'm going to talk about, and that's very much using the premises, like very much using the premises of your customer to offer financial products. So uh, I think that something that really needs to be understood with the embedded finance is where is the like who is hedging the risk for uh, giving away the money for releasing the funds and the in the credit action. And if it's still an external company, but just that just uses an interface of the company, that is what, in my opinion, the second stage of embedding finance, right? So like, instead of linking you to my own website, I'm using your own website to kind of upsell you on this on the on this product on this product. So I understand the context. I don't know. I'm buying something from you, but there is still an external part that comes into play that says, okay, I can see your interactions, the interaction guys. How about I give you a loan now? And that's fine. But that's kind of a bit of a sophisticated lead generation, in my opinion. And what I think, like the banksers of this world and other cool companies that are working in this space, will be moving to the, towards the third step. And the third step is really like the pinnacle of embedding. And in my opinion, like embedding is all about leveraging a unique piece of information uh, about two parties involved, right? So if you are just a third party giving alone to these to these two people talking to each other that's you know you can do it more streamlined less streamlined you can use their ui you can use your own ui but it's still the same you're you essentially selling your own uh credit product and you're hedging your own risk uh but then the third step in embedded finance is where okay you have this unique piece of information i know this guy knows this guy very well and they've been doing business for like 11 months now he, he sometimes like there's some seasonality in his business and we know about this because we can see it in his, his crm that sometimes he earns less than he earns more so we're fine to give him a loan now and this context actually has a radical like makes a radical difference when it comes to interest rates and what actually can be offered in terms of financial products you're using something very unique about an interaction between a buyer and a seller and you're leveraging that to prop all that to, to, to run that financial product and again, and a very simple example of that, my one uh, one of my favorite ones, and and I and I will shut out and leave it to Lars, um, is uh, is payroll advancement, right? So you get your salary sooner than you would your employer would 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 um, give it to you, and they can offer it to you at almost zero interest rate because they have a piece of information about your employment. They see your employment contract. They know you've been employed at this place for three years, and you're gonna be employed. Like rationally, there's nothing wrong with your contract, and even if you go, if, if they if they fire you, you still have a three months pe uh, notice period, so you're fine. Um, and based on this unique piece of information, which is me and my employer, an external party, an embedded finance solution can say, I'm going to give you a better financial product because I'm not hedging risk on my entire portfolio of people not paying me back. I'm looking at the risk of you being employed at this place, and I really trust that you will be, and you will get your salary, and you will pay me back. So one percent interest for you. And you know that's for me. Obviously, that's just an example, and these examples are like there will be millions of them. But I think using a unique piece of information between two parties involved to run and to adjust the financial product is what really embedded finance will be about. I think what you what you just described as well is like the degree of integration of of these financial products, especially when it comes to data um utilization you know like because you're basically merging banking with a new use case and creating a new proprietary 
data source that where you combine your risk model plus some unique data point about these uh, clients on a platform, for example, um, which banks were, uh, is using um, as an example again um, to to um, assess the credit risk of sellers on uh, or restaurants that are selling via um, Delivery Hero, for example. So so and really merging these data points to um, create a better lending product, I think that's what you mentioned is really key because the outcome should be a better financial product than just a standard product. What you mentioned at the beginning in the first stage, which would be just a cross-sell play, um, which has not that much to do with really um, truly embedded banking. Just to comment on that, like I'm sure as Banksware works with Delivery Hero, they're leveraging a unique piece of their CRM. Like they know this person has been driving with, with Delivery Hero. So as a result, they can give them a brilliant financial product, right? Beat insurance, uh, uh, loans, and so on and so forth. But and if the same person with the same kind of track record of being a, you know, a fair person that wants to get a loan and pay it back, and if they went out to any company that gives out, gives out loans, they would get a terrible rate right. because the company really needs to hedge the risk of their entire portfolio of people coming to them. And here, they would probably you know, not even get a, get a product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or not get it at all, right? Because of yeah. yeah, because how the financial system is constructed. But yeah, that unique piece of information, and that's why I'm saying banks were it has started off with like it's a brilliant value proposition. They started off with uh, with, with with kind of upselling on the someone's website or someone's mobile app. But I can see that they're progressively moving into leveraging you know, pieces of information from the Delivery Hero CRM, stuff like this. And this is really kind of the, the, the core and the super exciting bit about embedded finance. Mm -hmm. And maybe from like the last comment from my side regarding this discussion, I mean, uh, there's the three stages that Matthias described like very well. I think at the beginning, the example with the car lease um, and, and the, the leasing partner, maybe similar to that, the Amazon or Mercedes Bank's credit card. I think what's important here to mention, I was just looking for the numbers. I mean, you probably also know this, uh, uh, Matt Harris from, from Bain Capital in the US versus a uh, very famous figure of um, uh, embedded finance going to be a uh, $7.2 trillion uh, market opportunity. And comparing that to the value of banks and global insurers right now, which is actually lesser than this number. And I think what you described right now explains that perfectly because embedded banking or embedded finance more specifically, is not so much about just taking existing banking products and selling them in, the, like in, a, in, a, in a new way, but it's actually building completely new companies, building completely new uh, opportunities. And the, yeah, the market will actually be bigger than, than what we're seeing before or right now. Perfect. So I would say we leave it at that. Um, I'm, I, I see in our notes we have uh, a little bit more as well we could talk about, but um, I'm actually thinking we could wrap, or I will wrap this up also as a blog post and um, where I can then address also other, other points that we couldn't um, address now in the podcast. But if anyone that is listening now um, has now um, caught fire and wants to build new financial products, um, where, where do they find you, um, Lars Weaver and um, Matthias, for the um, transaction link? Um, feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I am doing my best to have my Twitter work for me very well. Uh, not great at this, but I will respond to DMs. So look, if you if there's any questions, I'm super happy to have a chat. Please prove me wrong. I want to be proven wrong. So just feel free to reach out on any social platform like LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, our website is out there for you to see what we're building. You can actually browse through the apps you can play around with and, and, what, and see what you can build like in practice. Um, so yeah, I'm very open to, to to chat with anyone who's interested. And 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 sorry, Adrian, for kind of dominating the embedded finance uh, <laughs> good. question for you. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's why we have you here. So um, if you're really interested, go to transactionlink.io. And last, likewise, probably for Weaver, Weaver.io. Exactly. LinkedIn, Twitter. Feel free to reach out. Always happy to chat and see how, how we can help or maybe even other people. 
All right, then uh, thanks a lot, guys, for uh, taking the time um, to provide insights and especially from your practical experiences in, in working at the forefront of embedded banking. It's, I think, hugely valuable for listeners or for probably also incumbent banks to see where the market is going, but also for um, the innovators that want to build new use cases and um, actually want to take or understand better what open banking and embedded banking or and embedded finance means. So um, thanks a lot. And um, let's uh, catch up soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me.